So I wasn't on the last episode. I heard you talking about my life and how odd it is. I was in a room the other day. I took a long wellness weekend that the company gives us, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And so I really like those. Went to the Royal Albert Hall and watched like a military concert band. The King showed up and we had to sing God Save the King because like it's an open of a military ceremony, except you sang it and he was five rows behind me. So I turned around and sung it right to his face. It was very odd. Mm. There's a few things that give me as much joy and pleasure in my life as listening to stories from your life. This is so on brand and it's so fun. It was quite odd. You have no idea what I'm going to have to put up with if my mom hears this episode. <laughs> she's a huge fan of the Royals, so she's going to be like, how do I follow Matt around? How do I go wherever Matt goes? He got to see the king. Oh, my goodness. It happens every year. Mountbatten Festival of Music. He is the patron of the Royal Marines, so I'm assuming he'll show up again next year. Did he see you? Was he like, there's that Matt guy. He's got that radio show. Hey, Matt, give me a call out next time. The photo that I took, it does look like he's looking straight at me. But it's probably because everybody else was like singing and the patriotic view of everybody was just like, oh, isn't this a good moment? And I was like, ah, I need to zoom in a little bit more for my Instagram. <laughs> like, I was trying to get a good photo. Everybody else was kind of breathing in the moment. But I knew the first thing that I needed to do was send Rue a photo. <laughs> yep. Yep, and I appreciate that that's your instinct in that situation, so thank you. Yeah, because I thought, you know, this is a scrape I'm getting myself into. <laughs> Rue will really enjoy hearing about this. At least you didn't pull out the camera and, like, have a bunch of royal guards tackle you. I mean, that's true. I mean, it could have been worse. Yeah, I made sure that the flash was off, because I thought that would be really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> That would totally be something I would do. I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, one second. And I'd be like, that's why I don't get to meet the king. <laughs> the, the moment that they turn the flash off is the one moment that I'm like, right, I should check. So let me turn it on and then off again. And then obviously it just flashes out loud. And I'm like, oh, God, there's, I think there's nothing worse. Yep. Should we talk a little bit about how very recently we shipped a pretty big update to 1Password where you no longer have to have a password to sign in? This is huge, and there's so much work that went into it, both from the design side, the development side, the product side, the marketing side. All aspects of 1Password have been involved with this. It's remarkable. 1Password always seemed like magic to me, and then I see this, and I'm like, whoa, this is some next level. Like, this is, it's just phenomenal. This has been a ton of effort from some very, very smart people to get us to this point. So for those that don't know for 1Password business accounts, you can now set it up to sign in with an identity provider. An identity provider is is a service that usually businesses use that allow you to sign into other, other systems, other services without needing to sort of have separate usernames and passwords for each of those. And 1Password now supports sign-in with the identity provider Okta. And Okta is a premier provider of, of identity services for companies, and you can now turn that on for your 1Password account and all of your employees that are currently set up to unlock and sign into things with Okta can now sign in and unlock with that in 1Password, which is huge. And this is also the first step in our passwordless journey, I would say, at 1Password as we're putting more and more effort into, into ensuring that we're embracing and driving the, the passwordless future that is coming. 
the thing that I really like is that we've done this in a very much a one password way. It's zero knowledge architecture. It's end to end encryption. Like all of this is preserved. Decryption still happens on device. And there's a whole thing about like the, the technical underlay of it all and our approach to SSO, which is single sign on, which is the identity provider thing. But because we're using a trusted device model, even if any identity provider credentials are compromised, attackers actually still won't be able to access your, your one password data, which is huge. It's a, a technical feat to do this as well. Yes, yes. And this sort of speaks to the, as I mentioned, like the very smart people that we've had working on this problem. Like, yeah, this is, it is very on brand for us at 1Password that before we started to go down this path, we asked ourselves the question of like, how do we preserve the current security model that we have? And so that's where this trusted device model came from. For those that use Apple devices, this is something that you're very familiar with already, where when you try and sign in on a new device, all of your existing devices light up and go, hey, someone's trying to sign in to this account. Like, here's a code that you're going to need to put in on that new device. So that exists within one password now for these types of accounts. It adds a ton of protection and really allows us to continue to embrace our security model and, and, and all of the things that Matt was talking about. I'm going to shout out my team for a second, because uh, if you go to the blog post on this, not only is this seamless to use and a technical feat, but it's really beautiful as well. Some of the illustration work that we've done, uh, some of the UI work that we've done on this is really impressive. Yeah, it really truly is. It's been so much fun. You know, I was just going to say, oh, yeah, you know, basically it's extra magical, <laughs> which is, you know, you guys say all this smart stuff and then I come in and say, duh, 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 duh. <laughs> but it really has been remarkable watching like all of our teams like across the board are really pushing themselves to take it to that next level the tool itself is like wow seamless we're looking at the security side of it and it's like making sure privacy is first and then you see the design side of it you see the videos coming out and it's like this is our team and our team is freaking amazing like it is it is just so nice to see this stuff coming out and be like that's ours we did that this isn't like a third-party company this isn't like hey, can you get your friend to put something together for me? This is like our people pushing themselves and like creating amazing stuff. Well said. Shall we jump into some Watchtower Weekly? Let's do it. So this one's from the BBC and it's about WhatsApp, which says it would be rather blocked in the UK than weaken its security. So WhatsApp says it would rather be blocked in the UK than undermine its encryption messaging system if required to do so under the online safety bill. Its head, Will Cathcart, said that he would simply refuse to comply if, if it would weaken the privacy of encrypted messages. The app Signal previously said that it could stop providing services in the UK if the bill required it to scan messages. The UK government has said that it is possible to have both privacy and child safety. And WhatsApp is the most popular messaging platform in the UK, used by more than 7 in 10 adults who are online. That's wild numbers. Critique of the online safety bill says that it grants Ofcom the power to require private encrypted messages and other services to adopt accredited technology to identify and remove child abuse material. The undermining of the, the privacy of WhatsApp messages in the UK would do so for all users, Mr. Cathcart said, and says, Our users all around the world want security. 98% of our users are outside the UK. They do not want us to lower the security of the product, he said. And the app would rather be, rather accept being blocked in the UK. We've been blocked in Iran, for, for example. we never seen a, a liberal democracy do that, he added. 
Signal President Meredith Whittaker previously told BBC News it would absolutely 100% walk and stop providing services to the UK if required by the bill to weaken the privacy of its encrypted messaging system. Asked if he would go as far as Signal, Mr. Katzkart said, we won't lower the security of WhatsApp. We have never done that, and we have accepted being blocked in other parts of the world. And he feared that the UK would set an example other nations might follow. The British person in the room representing here, this is awful. I really hope that they don't push this. But as others watching the UK around the world, they probably will do something stupid just from previous stupidity. It's so stupid, I don't even have a comment. There's so many things out there where people are like, hey, we think this is the best way to do it. And then you look back through history and you're like, who was watching these people who are supposed to be being the experts on this? This was a really bad choice that we as a nation have made. Let's not do that again. Sorry, I don't trust that the government is the most smartest person in the room to talk about how the technology should be working and understanding it. You know, us turning around and saying, as a government, well, we don't like that, don't do it, is is really bizarre. Yeah, I, I think it's a really hard problem and one that has obviously come around in conversation, especially around encryption several times, right? Privacy versus child safety and essentially, you know, even in an end-to-end encrypted system, trying to scan things on device and then flag certain messages. But always the conversation of like, well, how far does that scanning actually go? Like, does it pick up things that you don't want your government to know about? I think generally technology companies are not involved in the policy making here. And I think that's probably part of the problem. But it's so hard. No, but it's the guise of we're protecting the children. That seems to be the common theme for any time we want to do something new. And it's we have to protect the children. And At this point in time in history where we've done this so many times, it's gotten a little thin. People are well aware that there are issues out there where children have needs and we need to be doing better to protect them. But like, there's a whole encyclopedia of things we could be doing to help protect the children that is not this. What is the actual point of this? Because if we wanted to help protect children, we would increase our education for children on how to be safe online. We would increase basic food programs online so that kids don't have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal and and all this kind of stuff. Like there's so much to enrich the lives of children that this isn't something that is like critical to kids these days. Agreed. I will say that it's nice to see the stance that WhatsApp is taking here. The problem, of course, is that if this becomes a reality and WhatsApp is now blocked in the UK and then this sort of cascades and it becomes blocked everywhere, then that's that's just the end of WhatsApp. Like that's it. I think we're I think we're pretty good at rioting. It's <laughs> it, it, what brings the downfall of the British democracy. They banned WhatsApp. <laughs> All right. This next one. Telehealth startup Cerebral shared millions of patients' data with advertisers. Cerebral has revealed that it shared the private health information, including mental health assessments, of more than 3.1 million patients in the United States with advertisers and social media giants like Facebook, Google, and TikTok. The telehealth startup, which exploded in popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
after rolling lockdowns and surge in online-only virtual health services. It disclosed the security lapse in a filing with the federal government that it shared patients' personal and health information who used the app to search for therapy or other mental health care services. Cerebral said that it collected shared names, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, IP addresses and other demographics, as well as data collected from Cerebral's online mental health self-assessment which may have also included the services that the patient selected, assessment responses, and other associated health information. Cerebral was sharing patients' data with the tech giants in real time by the way of trackers and other data collecting code that the startup embedded within its apps. Tech companies and advertisers like Google, Facebook, and TikTok allow developers to include snippets of their custom-built code, which allows the developers to share information about their apps and analytics and activity with the tech giants often under the guise of analytics, but also for advertising. But users often have no idea that they are opting into this and and tracking simply by accepting the app's terms of use and and privacy policies, which no one reads, right? Cerebral said that in its notice to customers buried at the bottom of its website that the data collection and sharing had been going on since October 2019, when the startup was founded. The startup said it has removed the tracking code since from its apps. And while not mentioning, the tech giants are under no obligation to delete the data that Cerebral has shared with them. News of Cerebral's year-long data lapse comes just weeks after the US Federal Trade Commission slapped GoodRx with a $1.5 million fine and ordered it to stop sharing patients' health data with advertisers. And BetterHelp was ordered to pay customers $8.5 million for mishandling their users' data. The explosion of these, you know, mental health online services, it has been extreme during the the pandemic. And I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised because I think people look at these, you know, health providers online like this as health providers. But really what they are is technology companies. And as everything becomes a technology company, really, we need global rules around this kind of stuff not just like medical institutions have certain responsibilities but i think every company should have a certain responsibility and it can't be just privacy policies and and like the guise of of tick 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 and i'm i'm done there are so many forms online where you have to fill in really sensitive information now i just i'm terrified every time i do it i don't know where it's going i don't know what that person on the other end is doing with it. I was going to say this is just this is just gross to me because it's it's not only that this is happening, but that it's being framed as a security issue, as a a data lapse, as a oh security flaw. This isn't a security flaw. This is a tool that has said we are going to be free. Aren't we nice? We're free. We're free to use. We're going to harvest and collect the crap out of all of your data, and we're going to sell it, and that's how we're going to make money. So. You know, you might as well be one of those, you know, which office plant are you like survey quizzes like it's the same thing under the guise of actually providing mental health. And when we have such an uptick in people and we're trying to lower barriers of access and we're trying to encourage people to get help where they can, it's already hard enough sometimes when you're dealing with mental health issues to ask for help. So then you finally get around, you do it. You're like, I'm going to put myself first. I'm going to ask for help. You start doing some work, you put some time in, you do this stuff, you find a site like this, and then it turns around and, you know, all of your Facebook ads, your TikTok ads are all tying back and it's like, okay, you know, it doesn't help with that feeling of, 
am I doing the right thing? You know, why does it feel like everything is around me at this point in time? So it's it's just gross. The other aspect of this that's frustrating is is that it feels predatory. And these are services that people thought were there to help them. And in some cases, they I'm sure that they did. But these are also services that position themselves as healthcare providers. And they were not. And that's, that's a problem. I also think, you know, legal disclaimer, I, I don't know. And I'm this is my opinion. I highly doubt this was a mistake. I bet it was just a cost of doing business. 100%. It's purely just, you know, how do I monetize this? And I'm going to monetize it by selling all your stuff. Please fill out another form. Thank you. All right. We're dealing with some heavy ones today. Yeah. This next one. Mozilla lambasts Google over misleading privacy label on top Android apps. So this one's from The Verge. An investigation into data safety labels on Google Play Store has allegedly uncovered serious loopholes that allow apps like Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook to easily provide false or misleading information regarding how data is shared. The study conducted by the Mozilla Foundation identified 40 of the most globally downloaded apps on the Google Play Store and discovered almost 80% of them had discrepancies between their privacy policies and the information listed on Google Play's data safety section. Google launched its data privacy section for the Play Store last year, noting that developers had sole responsibility to provide complete and accurate declarations for the information collected by their apps, filling out a, a Google data safety form. Mozilla argues that these self-reported privacy labels may not be accurately reflecting what user data is actually being collected due to shortcomings in the the safety forms honor-based systems, essentially, such as having vague descriptions for collection and sharing and failing to require apps to report data shared with, with service providers. Mozilla studied the top 20 free apps and top 20 paid apps and then graded them with a score of poor, needs improvement, or okay. Based on its findings, 16 of the total top 40 apps, including Twitter, Minecraft, and Facebook, all received a poor grade, while 15 apps, including TikTok, YouTube, Google Maps, Gmail, WhatsApp, and Instagram, achieved a needs improvement. Jen Culrider, friend of the show and project lead at Mozilla, said, Consumers care about privacy and want to make smart decisions when they download apps. Google's data safety labels are supposed to help them do that. Unfortunately, they don't. Instead, I'm worried that they do more harm than good. In one example within the report, Mozilla highlighted that TikTok and Twitter both claim not to share any data with third parties in their data safety forms, despite clearly stating that data is, in fact, shared with third parties in their respective privacy policies. Jen Kalrider also said, when I see data safety labels stating that apps like Twitter or TikTok don't share data with third parties, it makes me angry because it is completely untrue. Of course, Twitter and TikTok share data with third parties. Consumers deserve better and Google must do better. Google has since issued a statement dismissing the study, claiming that Mozilla's grading system is inefficient. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the real problem with this. This report conflates company-wide privacy policies that are meant to cover a variety of products and services with individual data safety labels, which inform users about the data that that specific app collects says a Google spokesperson. The arbitrary grades the Mozilla Foundation has assigned to apps are not a helpful measure of safety or accuracy of the labels, given the flawed methodology and lack of substantiating information. Apple has also been criticized for its own developer-submitted privacy labels, with a 2021 report from the Washington Post finding that many iOS apps similarly provided misleading information with some of the apps falsely reporting that they didn't collect or share or track user data. 
Mozilla suggests that Apple and Google should adopt a universal standardized data privacy system across their platforms to address these concerns and recommends that large tech companies take greater responsibility and enforce action against apps that fail to provide accurate information regarding data sharing. A lot of information there, but I kind of see what Google says, which is like they're looking at what the app does in isolation from what the product does the difficult thing is like good (laughs) right like if they are being downgraded because the app specifically doesn't do something but the service does when you download that app you are still onboarding yourself into that service so really if the data privacy labels are a representation of not just what the app does but what the service does then i think that is better Do you know what I think we need as a planet is when you buy food in England, it is color coded like green, orange, red. And it's basically like this is bad for you. This is reasonably bad for you or this is good for you. The only thing green is broccoli. Everything else is full of salt. (laughs) I think putting that on websites and services would be great. I don't know how as a humanity we move all at the same step and, and actually agree to that. We can't even get people to agree on how to fill forms on the Internet. Like, this is where a credit card number goes. (laughs) (laughs) Or how to design forms on the internet. You know what I mean? Like, I think there needs to be, on the planet side of it, there needs to be this recognition as a whole for all people that you as a human have value. You as a human have individual bits of information to yourself that are valuable. And that information is up to you to figure out how you share it. And then reminding people of that because it's it's like the old scam stuff where it's like oh it doesn't matter they can steal my wallet all they're going to get is my visa bills and it's like it's not about how much money you owe when your mortgage is like everyone is a target it doesn't matter who you are because your identity has value and teaching people that so that they can be smart about how they want to share things it's really important because it's like things like this just sort of add to that ongoing erosion of trust where you're just not sure how am I supposed to believe things these days? Who's really watching things? Which companies do I trust with my data? It's definitely, you can see that there's initiatives. There's groups out there that are trying very hard to bring web safety standards up. They're trying, you know, encryption standards, all this kind of stuff. It's just frustrating that, you know, we still are at the point where people still don't seem to recognize the fact that if something isn't charging you for their service, their payment is your information. It doesn't have to be this monetary exchange. You know, back in the days before we had actual cash money, it was this bartering system, you know, I'll sweep your floors if you give me a dozen eggs. Now it's the same thing, except it's I'll let you use this free app and you can give me all of your biological data that I'm going to sell to someone. I was busy thinking about my Pokemon Go app. I'm still a big Pokemon (laughs) person because I have to keep up with uh, my parents my uh, mom and my mother-in-law both are hardcore Pokemons, but it's every now and then I still get the Apple reminder, Niantic is tracking you. And it's, I don't really like that. You know, I can't earn my badges. I can't earn my medals unless I let them track me so I can earn my stuff. Pokemon's not sharing my information. Pokemon's not gathering information, but Niantic is. And what is Niantic doing with that? Like when I'm reviewing the terms and services for the app itself, it's not really giving me the company's terms and policies. And I think that's what this disconnect is with the Mozilla rating and Google's rating, where it's like, well, we looked at this fraction of a piece of something. And Mozilla's like, well, we looked at the whole piece and this is the problem. And, you know, there's this disconnect between all the pieces. Yeah. Okay. So, Rue, you spoke to the Darknet Diaries host, Jack Rysider. 
Oh, how was it? Oh, it was fantastic. Jack is back. It was, it was wonderful. I think that the best way, though, to sort of for everyone to experience how wonderful it is, is for us to just go ahead and, and drop it in here. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the show today is Jack Resider. Jack is the great mind creator and host behind one of the most popular cybersecurity podcasts out there, Darknet Diaries. Each episode uncovers incredible true stories from the dark side of the internet, and I'm excited to welcome Jack back and hear more of them today. Jack, welcome to the show again. Yeah. How are you, and how are things in the podcast world? Thanks for having me back again. It's fun being back on the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, the podcast is going well. It's been five years now since I started it. Wow. And the uh, audience just keeps getting bigger, and more people love it. So, yeah, it's going really well. That's awesome. Yeah, that is super, super cool. What are some of the wildest stories that you've covered recently? Like, let's dive right into it. Yeah, I think the one that really kind of caught me by surprise was I think it's called Dirty Comms and it's a story about like what teenagers are doing making money online kind of hacking online right so people are breaking into rich people's bitcoin wallets and stealing that they're doing all sorts of scams and online stuff and it's it's crazy because a lot of this is done by teenagers and it's not uncommon for some of these kids in these circles to just kind of have a hundred thousand dollar million dollar licks in like a saturday night and then going crazy and chat like hey i just you know stole this much bitcoin or whatever and now what should i do i've got a million bucks yeah i mean it's just a kind of a wild peek into this strange circle that's going on that kind of took me by surprise because i wasn't i wasn't exactly sure you know you think about like who's stealing this bitcoin like you might be thinking oh organized cyber gangs and the russians like all this stuff comes to mind you don't think of like some teenager in <laughs> oakland california who's doing it right so it's wild when I was a teenager, Jack, my Friday nights were like a bucket of popcorn and watching Hercules followed by Xena. Like I, I was not, I was not hacking people's people's computers. Okay, this is what I like to walk down, right? So, so when when we were teenagers, it was probably you know Pirate Bay was going around. We had Where's Scene, right? So you'd swap like music or maybe video games or movies or something. And download that stuff because you're a teenager and you just see other people do it online. And that's kind of the thing. And there's this whole place called The Scene, which was crackers and freakers and all this kind of stuff. That was, People were making audio demos and video demos. And it was kind of a cool underground kind of place. This is where teenagers were kind of in the 90s and early 2000s online. And then in the mid-2010s or so... You had Anonymous, and there was a lot of teenagers in Anonymous, and we all know what trouble they got into, right? They were DDoSing <laughs> places they didn't like as sort of a protest, and they were hacking into places, and it became, you know, kind of a threat. If Anonymous is targeting you, oh, shit, you got to watch out. Yeah. What is yeah. the teenage subculture doing today that is technocrats, right? The tech-affiliated people who want to rebel, and this is what that is, and that's where I'm totally disconnected from that because I don't have that kind of teenage online presence that I did that I care about these weird goofy edgelord you know <laughs> places online and so it's wild just to see like how things have evolved over time and where I was and where anonymous was and I think I mean you really don't hear anonymous hacking anything these days so it's kind of fizzled out as far as their hacking presence goes if it is they're older people pretty much it's just wild to see what the teens are up to that's true I guess you know it is possible 
that I did have a copy of Doom 2 uh, back in the day that wasn't entirely legit for me to have. So yeah, this is, I guess this is sort of the latest evolution of it, but it's still bananas to hear. So, okay, outside of teens hacking Bitcoin wallets and stuff like that, is there a particular type of data breach or hacking gang that's really caught your attention in the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, I think I am really fascinated with this because it it goes into all kinds of areas you just never expected, right? So like these kids aren't just stealing Bitcoin. They're doing whatever they can, however they can, right? So I mean, just recently, the other day, I saw a post from somebody who works at Taco Bell and their post is something like $5 for a coupon, like for free food, $30 for a password reset, for any user at tacobell.com and like $90 for a full account like here's your username and password. <laughs> what? Thing is is that this is an any, right? So this is a person who works at Taco Bell and they're at the computer and they're on shift for the next 8 hours and they're just like, "Hey, I'm in this group of people who need innies. Here's what I can do at Taco Bell, right? So somebody who works at Taco Bell is selling their access to whatever you want. So they could reset any user's password. So if you know someone's password, who I don't really know Taco Bell that well, so I don't know if they have like points or you can just use their online store to like order tacos <laughs> and then you can get it for like, you know, someone else's card or something. So if like you could take over someone, I know it works for Chipotle, right? So if you can take over someone else's Chipotle account, their credit card may be attached to it. So then you can order Chipotle and get that free burrito. <laughs> I think this might be happening also at Taco Bell, right? So this is this is the weird world that I'm talking about of like, hey, I work at Taco Bell. How can I make money surreptitiously while I work here without like breaking too many rules or laws? Like I'm not just you know giving free burritos out to people, but I'm I'm doing this weird thing online. So I mean, yeah, this has just totally fascinated me, and it goes into so many areas, right? So. I mean, we talked about Chipotle and Taco Bell. Hilton's Honors is another thing, right? So people have Hilton's Honors rewards. You can, you know, get a free hotel night stay if you can take over someone's account and they have enough, you know, honor rewards points. You could just say, oh, yeah, here, here's my name and here's my points. Please use this to book me a room. And people are stealing someone else's points to get into the rooms. Wow. Some other stuff I've seen is like refund scams. So... You know, you order like expensive thing like a MacBook Pro and then you say, oh, it didn't work. I need to return it. But you return an empty box <laughs> or a box of rocks or something. And you do it in such a way like you trick the system. You know, there's all these different things that these kids are, are swapping their like methods to trick the system to, you know, when they first receive the box, they scan it as received it, but they haven't opened it. And so if you can call them up at the right time and say, look, you've received it. How come you didn't, you know, refund me? Oh yeah, you're right here. Let's refund you now. Sorry for the delay, you know, cause maybe it's in processing or something. Like there's ways to somehow trick the system. So now you get the refund and you got to keep the laptop. And people are doing this as a service as well. They're like, hey, if you bought something and you want to help refund it, I can refund it for you and you can keep the item and then you can pay me if you can get the refund like 10% or something like that. So like there's this crazy underground world and I'm just like, yeah, how far does this go? How deep does it go? Tell me more. And I'm just totally like fascinated with all this. And that's got to fly so under the radar. I mean, you just don't hear about this. This, this isn't shutting down oil pipelines or disrupting the meat industry. This is just like small little pockets that are just Mm -hmm. doing nefarious nonsense it's crazy 
Wow. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of stores, you know, they accept a certain amount of just loss, right? So they're going to have people returning things and losing items, theft and stuff like that. And so they just kind of have a certain percentage of there's just loss that we're going to, you know, hit. Let's just move on. And they don't actually investigate how come this got scammed or refund or whatever the case is, or why did somebody steal this? They're just like, look, sorry, your Chipotle account got taken over. Here's your points back. And we'll give you like two free burritos if you stay as a customer. And that's it. That's the whole investigation. It doesn't go further. <laughs> My gosh. So hang on a sec. I need to take a breath because this is so freaking funny to me. And like, <laughs> I'm looking at like the next questions and I'm like, we're just going to talk about burritos some more though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, another, so, I mean, I go into like Reddit and I see like people in Chipotle subreddit, like, how come it says I bought all these burritos, right? And you get these like weird clues that something here is going on. And something I've seen in, in the Spotify subreddit a lot is somebody keeps listening to music on my account and it's not me. I did not listen to these songs and I don't know why this is happening. <laughs> and there's all these people who are like, somebody listened to those exact songs on my account. Me too, me too, me too. And so why are all these accounts listening to this music when they didn't listen to that music, right? And so my theory there, I haven't really heard from this circle, but my theory is like there are certain songs that get played and then those make money, right? You get 0.01 cents or whatever for playing a song. And if somebody can take over just a big swath of Spotify accounts and then play the same songs. And those are crappy songs. These are songs you've never heard of. They're just like garbage. But if you could play it, then Spotify will give that, you know, creator a royalty check. And how can that be gamed? How can you get into that and say, all right, let's make as much money from Spotify as we can. Like people are thinking this through and then like swapping ideas and building tools and figuring it out. It's such a crazy world. You know what this is, Jack? It's like the microtransaction version of hacking. Like, <laughs> like that's really what this is. That's scraping pennies off of every uh, transaction. Yeah. <laughs> if I <laughs> and not letting the accounting department know. Oh God. Oh, this is too good. I love it. Okay. Well, that's where one password can come in, right? You have a good complex password for your Spotify account. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That's good. I appreciate you keeping it on brand and bringing it back home. That's very, very good. Okay. So let's talk about how you're actually covering some of these stories. Have you had to find your way into some murky circles to get the inside scoop, to get some secret details for some of these stories? Like, how does that work? It's really weird. I think it's luck. I think there's three kinds of luck in the world. There's like dumb luck where you just stumble upon hit of random lottery winning lottery ticket right that's there's nothing you could really do about that and then there's kind of luck after like a lot of hard work right so you just keep digging and digging and digging at some point you'll find gold after you just dig enough and then there's the third kind of luck which is i'm lucky that people are bringing me stories and this is luck i've actually created myself because i've created the show that digs into this kind of stuff and I think what's happening is people are sharing me these stories who are actually doing this stuff, right? They're the criminals behind it. And some of them have been caught and some are just in the circles watching others do it. And the thing is, is that they hear my show and they're like, this guy isn't like some mainstream media, doesn't understand who the hacker 4chan is. <laughs> he understands this and he's not like painting it in a scary way. He's really understands like, and, and so... People are bringing me these stories. I mean, it started kind of like, you know, people are like, I just got out of prison. I don't know who you are, but people are telling me I should tell you my story. So here's my indictment. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, this is an interesting story you have here. And so it starts kind of like that. And then, you know, I think 
there was someone from the NSA who tapped me on the shoulder when I was at DEF CON one year. I was like, would you like the NSA to tell you a story? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't think the NSA is going to tell me a story. And he's like, I think I can make it happen. And that was Operation Glowing Symphony, right? The NSA actually came on the record and talked to us about how they hacked ISIS and all the different things that happened. Wow. And I'm just like, how is how did I get this lucky that the NSA is approaching me with stories? It was actually US Cyber Command, but it's close enough. And then now it's like, Okay, so there's these people in these crazy, they call them comms, comms communication circles that are like, hey, have you ever looked into SIM swapping or, you know, OG users? Do you, do you ever want to have a story about that? And I'm just like, tell me more. And then they <laughs> tell me more. And I'm like, how do you know this? And they're like, well, I'm in these circles. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really that kind of luck of, of just getting out there, reporting it, making the show, and it spreading wide enough to hit the people in these circles. And then, of course, once I do just crack that door open a little bit and talk about it in any way, shape, or form, the people in those comms are going crazy, like, oh, my gosh, we were on Darknet Diaries. <laughs> and, and so now I got, like, 10 more people messaging me, like, hey, I'm the one who made that tool you mentioned, and I'm the one who, I was the guy you mentioned in that episode that he got arrested in, in New York. <laughs> like, oh, okay, you're that guy. And so it just, like, it's crazy. I mean, I've got federal, you know, agents message me, too, like, hey, I was the prosecutor on this case. In fact, a lot of law enforcement and attorneys and stuff have reached out and said, yeah, I was the one who worked that case. I can't believe you got him to admit all that because I couldn't get him to admit all that on, on the stand. Yet here he comes on your show and admits it all. Wow. So it's just such a crazy ride and how far the show is reaching ears. It just goes to show that like all the players in this space are kind of tuned in and some come forward and have stories. That's awesome. That's got to feel really cool. Yeah. So the last time you were on the show, you mentioned that the news reporting of cybercrime is, is, quote, the first draft of history. And the media don't often get it right from the outset. And that what's so important about your show in that you reevaluate incidents after some time has passed. Do you think that that's still the case when it comes to cybersecurity in the news and that we can all learn something from revisiting security faux pas? Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that there's just all this guessing of who did it and why they did it and what they took and how impactful it could be and all this kind of stuff. And that's the other thing is like, we're not creative enough to come up with what this is even going to do to hurt someone. Like a lot of times you hear someone say, well, they took a list of email addresses of these users, but what is that even going to do? Like that's just going to be used in phishing or something like, and they can't think of what harm that can be in a bigger picture. That's where, yeah, I listen to the news and I'm just, I cringe at it after the fact because it's just so lacking content and people are talking sideways. It's everyone. It's not the worst of the news reporters, but it's the best of the news reporters. We just don't know yet. And so we're guessing and it's all wrong. And so that's what I kind of want to not be in that situation. I want to wait until I know what's going on. It's funny because a lot of people, when their you know, latest news is breaking, they're like, oh, Jack, j- jump on this and, and make an episode on this. And I'm just like, okay, in three years, because <laughs> I don't know anything right now. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still definitely a slow news junkie. And I do not like to jump into things until I know all the stuff. It's a privileged position because those places that are reporting on it in the moment, they have to. It's survival for them mm-hmm. to to be able to do something like that. Because if it's not breaking news, then people aren't watching. Their attention will go elsewhere. You have built something that doesn't rely on that whatsoever. So you get to take that slow burn approach. That's really cool and also must feel really safe in some regards. Yeah, it it kind of feels more like a Rolling Stone long form article. 
as opposed to, you know, a news article of what's going on this month or today or whatever, of like, no, let's go back and analyze, you know, here's kind of the history of, of what happened, but probably in a way that you didn't realize. And what's funny is people who are even working in those incidents or working on that situation or that case still learn stuff from the episode when they're like, well, I didn't know all that other stuff happened. And, th- and I think that kind of is one of the reasons why I make this show is because I think it was Heartbleed that came out. It was, ma- became a big deal, but then it just kind of died out and we didn't hear what that, you know, when the shoe fell, what happened, right? There was, did people actually get hacked? How bad was it? Or was the fixes that took place? And there was a lot of stuff that happened, you know, they got funding from major corporations. It's forked off into two different versions, Open SSH and Libra SSH. And then a Libra SSH made all these fixes and then that got merged back into open SSH. And there was all this stuff that happened and nobody's talking about this on any of the news channels. Right. And so I was like, I want a show that gives me that full picture that tells me what happened after the fact, all the fallout from it, what changed. Yeah. I mean, there's just not a single place that I could find that was doing that, or at least not a podcast. So that's kind of why I jumped into it. Yeah. It's such a great take to be able to, to sort of step back and, and be like, yeah, cool. That's great. I remember all the news. I remember people talking about it, but like, where are we now? Like what, mm-hmm. what actually happened? Because you're right. That just sort of falls away and it's, and we're on to the next, the next big thing. So you have any predictions for the year, for the future? Are we, is there anything we can be optimistic about things that you think we're going to start to see more of on the dark web? I think AI, so I think, you know, we've kind of had like different phases of technology, right? The first big technology phase was the industrial revolution and then the electrical age and then the computer age. And I think AI is kind of this next phase. And what you've got here are computers that are smarter than us and able to do things in a much more quicker and better way than we can. And what is that going to mean? Well, we've seen things like chat GPT show us how to find bugs in code. And so, you know, you can exploit this and be like, oh, here's a smart contract. Can you help me find the bug in here? There's got to be one somewhere. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, here's the bug. Here's how you exploit that smart contract. And it's like, OK, thanks. And then it's like that could be like a million dollar bug bounty or just even stealing the stuff. Right. So it's really interesting to see now AI is kind of our hacker front right? It's the, it's the criminal front, maybe. Like, let's use this to do some nefarious stuff. And that's going to be really interesting. But at the same time, we now have AI as a defense front saying, hey, here's my code. Help me find the bug in it. Okay, great. And why can't we integrate that into just the developing tools to begin with? Like, okay, get push. Wait, hold on. Let's run it through AI and make sure that it's good before you push it. Oh, there's some problems here. Let's get them fixed first. Or even part of the way it's, you know, as you type it out, it's just like, hey, by the way, this is a problem here. Yeah, maybe it's some sort of automated testing environment at some point or something like that. So I'm excited to see the world of AI and how it affects security and changes just everything in our whole world. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. It's going to be great and horrible. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> the main problem that I see, especially if you start covering like AI-based stories, is that they don't really care about credit or fame or anything else, Jack. So like you're gonna you're gonna sort of miss out on that community aspect <laughs> within some of these groups if it if you're just covering AI. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice for folks or businesses in order to prevent being exposed to the kinds of things that you've seen 
in the past or stuff that you think is coming up in the in the future? I think data is a liability. I'm just constantly disappointed when I go to my barber and they're like, fill out this form and give us your name and phone number and all. Like, dude, I just need a haircut. I don't need all this stuff, right? So <laughs> right. why are so many companies out there collecting so much data on us? And yeah, sure, it's for marketing or whatever, but no, it's not. There's so many places that I've never gotten an email from and never been marketed to. It just drives me crazy, right? So data is a liability. Just this week, I've been hearing rumors that the InfraGuard website got hacked. And this is where you report things to the FBI. You make an account on this website and you report your crime that you've seen or whatever the case is. I mean, you're a victim of something and you're reporting it to the FBI. And that whole database is now for sale on the dark web, supposedly. Holy cow, you know, if the FBI can't secure their own victims' data, what the heck? How can my local barber do any better? Yeah. So stop collecting data on people. There's no need for it. It's going to be a liability. It's going to be a huge PR nightmare for you. At some point, it just seems to be, it will happen, right? There's no way around it. So best just not to have anything. Yeah, nice. That is good advice. That is good advice. All right, Jack, last potentially most important question. Where can people go to find out more about you or check out the podcast? Yeah, I'm, I make the podcast Darknet Diaries. You can find it in any podcast player or just search for it anywhere and you'll find it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate you coming on today and take care. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Rue, you are running the game this week. Oh, apparently. God. It feels so good to be on this side of the table. I got to tell you. Do you know what? I have listened to last week's game again, and I have figured out the problem is that I'm busy trying to answer not the right answer, not a funny answer. So I, I have been studying. I am trying to make sure I do a better job. All right. Well, let's get into some rapid fire security questions. This is the game where we rapidly fire security questions at each other to achieve some random but memorable wrong answers there will be 60 seconds on the clock who would like to go first i feel like i need to because i've been practicing <laughs> all right go on then. i've been practicing it will be it will be sarah <laughs> the clock will start when i read the first question here we go which college or university did you attend clown university of excellence Ooh, what is your favorite pizza topping i would say pineapple because it's disgusting <laughs> but i know it's not a funny answer we'll go with spam What's a game you can't stop playing? How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Who's your favorite author? Mr. Bigglesworth. What app are you most addicted to right now? Jump to conclusions. What would your autobiography be called? The very serious, everyday, well-planned life of Sarah Teer. <laughs> How long does it take you to run a marathon? 2.4 seconds. Mm. What's your biggest fear? Getting this show wrong. No, <laughs> no I, I don't even know. Um, being prepared. <laughs> nice. Very nice. All right, Matthew, over to you. 60 seconds on the clock. Okay. What was the street name of your first home? Uh, Queen Lake. What's the happiest moment of your life? Uh, oh, that's... Um, giving a speech at Parliament. Describe a tattoo you have. I have a cookie uh, on my bum. <laughs> What's your favorite recipe to whip up in the kitchen? Um, uh, cold medicine. Who's your biggest inspiration? Um, uh, <laughs> oh God, uh, you are, Ruth. 
Thank you. What was your favorite class at school? Uh, efficiency class. How do you de-stress after a long day? I pave roads. What are you currently binging on Netflix? Um, the presidential speeches. Oh, perfect timing. Boy, it took you a long time to get to me as the answer for your biggest inspiration, uh, which I knew was the answer, and I think that you knew it too, but it, it did take you a, a hot minute. Yeah. Here's the problem is that I'm so vain that like I, I believe that. Like I think that that's probably accurate. <laughs> I don't know where paving roads came from, and I don't know where creating medicine in my own kitchen came from. It's funny because I think paving roads would actually be pretty pretty nice and relaxing some days but the cold medicine one you seem to come up with that very quickly like (laughs) almost quicker than you came up with rue as your inspiration like you seem to have that one ready to go like what's going on are those magical teas that you drink Uh, who knows well listen this has been a lot of fun i do have to run because i got to jump over and order myself a bottle of matt davies homebrew cold meds (laughs) and i want to get in before the rush so love you both love you both love you both have a great week 